This message entitled, There It Is, was delivered to Christ Our Rock Bible Church on March 3rd, 2024 by the Reverend Roy D. Warren Jr. The scripture reference is Matthew 21-19. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about a third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle. And saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the, all day, all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatever is right, shall, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto the steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came, and when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive even receive more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, <clears throat> I, do, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree for, with me for a penny? That <clears throat> take, that thine, take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto the last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many will be called, but few chosen. right there. Praise God. It's right there. Father, I do want to thank you, dear God, for a time to gather such as this and and uh, even more than that, I thank you for what we're about to hear. I thank you for your holy word. And I thank you, dear God, that you intend to accomplish much as that word is allowed to come within us and find good ground. Hallelujah. pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The boy's father explained why the little guy could not have a watch. Not just yet. Wait till you get a little older, the father kept repeating. 
And the boy's mother threatened him. I guess you could call it a threat. Please be quiet about that watch. We can't afford it. Finally, a rule was laid down. Do not mention that watch. That night at family devotions, the child asked if he could read a memory verse. And the parents were delighted that he wanted to do so. And then he quoted it. He said, Mark 13, verse 37. Mark 13, verse 37. And what I say unto you, I will say to all. Watch. Enough said. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> okay. You knew that's what was going to happen, didn't you? He wasn't allowed to say the word watch. Well, it's right there in the Bible. <laughs> watch. Okay, it's right there. We actually have before us here, and I, I didn't quite realize the fullness of uh, how, how too bad that it is that we don't have our... Uh, uh, time with the with the kids on what I was going to talk about because it ties in rather uh, amazingly with this uh, parable and uh, the uh, gathering of the uh, you know of of the workload and so forth. Uh, it is uh, it has been called uh, this this par- oh I should probably explain that a little bit. Well, I can't really, because then I'll give away what the children's sermon was about. So just hold on. I'll bring the stuff next week, and we'll tie it. We'll still tie it together. We don't have to be in this scripture to be able to do it. But you'll see how it fits. It's kind of cool. A fellow by the name of C.G. Montefiore calls this parable one of the greatest and most glorious of all. One of the greatest and the most glorious of all. Uh, Claude Goldspin, I think, is this middle name, Montefiore. And of course, that sounds very familiar to us because we've got this big old hospital down in Pittsburgh that is uh, called Montefiore Hospital. Actually, there are Montefiore hospitals all over the world. There are, there's more than one in New York City. Even in the Bronx, there's more than one. This fellow was a a Jewish theologian. What I mean by that, a theologian in the sense that he wrote books about God, but he was also Jewish, all right, as it turns out. In fact, now this is interesting. I'd like to find out more about this. He's, he's known for one of his most famous books is called The Synoptic Gospels. That's his title. The Syno- and I've told you about it before, what that means. Synoptic, S-Y-N, optic, synoptic, meaning one point of view. Syn meaning one, optic meaning point of view, one point of view. And what he's talking about are the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is not one of the synoptic gospels. John was written later. It is written in a pretty much, seems like quite a different way. You know, it's more symbolic. 
John's gospel, had, you know, if he wants to talk about miracles, he tells, that, he tells you that Jesus did seven miracles. Well, you know Jesus probably did hundreds of miracles throughout his ministry, but John only mentions seven. And there are different things like that that John does differently, okay? John does differently than the others, and that's why he's not one of the synoptic gospels, whereas the other gospels pretty much follow through on saying the same kinds of things about Jesus' ministry. Anyway, I just think that's interesting. How does a Jewish person write a book about the synoptic gospels when it's all about Jesus? And I'm, I, I, I don't know what to make of it exactly. I just know he was pretty famous. He uh, lived back in the early 1800s, and I think he died in... Uh, no, it was later 1800s. I, I think he died just, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 years. No, 100 years ago, okay? He died in the uh, early uh, 20th century, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, Montefiore. And, of course, we're all familiar with that hospital. Who was named after? That family. And I'm named after him. Uh, and, and there's, like I say, there's probably, I, I looked it up, and I, there seemed to be, like, I don't know, I'm just guessing, 20 different hospitals all over the world uh, with his name on it, whether he was the benefactor of it, whether he was, you know, the one that provided for the funds or whether these are just named after him, I couldn't tell you. But he said one of the greatest and most glorious parables of all. That's what he said. This one that we have here. Now, I already had Jim read it, so I don't want to go back over it and read it. I want to tell you about it, okay? This parable may sound to us as it is described a purely, it almost sounds like it might be an imaginary situation that, but, but really, I think a lot, a lot is, it's really true a lot with the parables of Jesus that it may not be a specific case in point, that it happened here and it happened there at this time and that time and so forth, but this stuff does happen, okay? So let's, let's go through this. So it's not all that imaginary. Uh, it's actually far from being imaginary. It's quite, quite true. Apart from the method of payment, the parable describes the kind of thing that frequently happened in certain times in Palestine, Okay? The grape harvest ripened towards the end of September. Now, this is not something mentioned in here. I'm giving you some background, trying to take you through the story and show you why these things are here and why they're important. Okay? The grape harvest uh, was towards the end of September. And you know that. If you've got grapes in your own yard, you know, you're talking about, you know, in the fall, September, sometimes October, you know, that you can pretty much go and uh, expect to... Uh, gather up some stuff. I haven't had much on my arbor. Uh, I had some last year and the year before, but nothing for years before that. And then close on its heels, the rains would come in their area. It was the rainy season. Now, if the harvest was not ingathered before the rains broke, then it was ruined. The grapes would be ruined. And so to get the harvest in was a frantic race against time. That's what this parable is talking about. Recognizing that time is short. 
There's one lady in one of the nursing homes, she just tells me every time I go, she says the time is short. Every time I go. She'll do it today. When I'm there this afternoon, she'll say it at least once. <laughs> Sometimes more than once. You know, the time is short. Any worker was welcome, uh, even if he could only work for an hour. He was more than welcome. The pay was perfectly normal. A denarius or a drachma, what the King James here calls a penny. It's not, when it says penny, it's not like our penny. It's like 16 cents worth, okay? But it's a day's wage. They didn't make it, you know. Stuff didn't cost near as much as they do today, okay? And uh, so that's what this is. This denarius. This is a day's wage, and it's a... Um, and it's, it's called a penny in the King James. And even allowing for the difference of modern standards and in purchasing power, uh, four pennies a day was not a wage uh, which left uh, any margin. Okay, uh, The men who were standing in the marketplace were not street corner idlers. They were, they were, it's not that they were lazy. They're waiting for somebody to hire them. They're not part of the family. They're not part of the workforce for the family. They go to different locations and they're hoping to get hired, okay? They were standing in the marketplace. They were not idling the way of the time. The marketplace was the equivalent to the labor exchange. A man would come there first thing in the morning carrying his tools. He'd bring his own stuff, bring his own, his own rakes and shovels and I don't know what all he would need and waited until someone would actually hire him. Now, the men who stood in the marketplace were waiting for work. And the fact that some of them stood uh, all day long until, say, 5 o'clock in the evening is proof of how desperately they wanted that job. But they weren't guaranteed it because they were not attached to the family. They were not part of that work crew. Okay? These men were hired laborers. They were the lowest class of workers, and life for them was pretty much always a, a desperately precarious. Slaves and servants were regarded as being, at, at least to some extent, attached to the family. You know, like servants and slaves and so forth. They were part of the family. Oh, they weren't family members, but they were part of that family or owned by that family. They were within the group, so to speak. Their fortunes would vary with the fortunes of the family, but they would never be in any imminent, uh, imminent danger of starvation in normal times. It was very different for the hired day laborers. If they went without a day's pay, the kids back home went hungry. They were not attached to any group. They just went where they thought they could get work. They were entirely at the mercy of chance, what's called chance employment. They were always living on the semi-starvation line, so to speak. If they were unemployed for a day, the family back home would suffer. No man, no man ever saved much out of that day's wage. Even if they got that day's wage, they didn't save much. It all went to expenses. And, and with them, to be unemployed for a day was an absolute disaster for the whole family. The hours in the parable were normal Jewish hours. Okay, we've looked at the financial aspect, but 
What about the time periods that are involved here? Well, the Jewish day began at sunrise, and that was about 6 a.m., okay? And the, see, this is before they decided to change clocks. This is before they decided to make it a rule that we change clocks. <laughs> anyway, 6, 6 a.m., was sunrise, and the hours were counted from then until 6 p.m., and what's that? 12 hours, right? And when officially the next day would begin, uh, beginning in the evening of the day before, okay, and that would take you through the rest of the day. This parable gives a vivid picture of the kind of thing which could happen at, in the marketplace of any Jewish village or town any day when the grape harvest was being rushed in to beat the rains. It was crucial that they take care of this before the rains came tumbling down, so to speak. It's right there. I mean, so far this parable has been very clear what a serious situation is there. It's right there. The humility that this would take to be one of these workers. I mean, even if you were the fellows, you know, that were part of the family, you know, that's your job. You worked all day, you went through all this stuff, you sweated all day long, and you're working at this thing, and and just for not a lot, not a lot of gain, not a lot of money. It's not like you're, you know, you're the owner of the vineyard or anything like that. And so it was. Uh, it would take a good bit of humility, I think, and especially if you were one of the ones showing up with your own tools, using your own stuff, and making next to nothing. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. Humility is the one grace that as soon as you declare you have it, you've lost it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, the King of Kings, the Bible says, was a humble man. The Old Testament, or the Bible, refers into the Old Testament about Moses. He was that he was the most, you know, humble man of all. He was a man of no reputation. It is said of Jesus, nothing about his appearance or manner suggested any kind of divinity, though he was, but it didn't look like it. He was a man of no reputation. The uh, Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians that it would please him as God as, as well if the Philippians would become humble men and women in limitation, in imitation rather, of Jesus Christ. Modern man is cheaply, chiefly concerned with working his way up. That's kind of the mantra of today's society. Get the foot in the first rung of the ladder and then the next one, the next one, and you work your way up. And for a lot of places that talk about this, it doesn't matter who you step on, it doesn't matter who you climb over, you know, you just have to keep working your way up. It's called the corporate ladder. Up the office pecking order, it's also called. You've up the social register is another way that it has been put. Jesus worked his way down. He started at the top. Amen? Praise God. In fact, in, in uh, Philippians, it, it speaks of this giving up what he had up in heaven to come down to this earth to, be, to have what we have. 
basically. Humanity. But Jesus started at the top. Paul said he existed in the form of God. But he didn't cling to that position. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, it says in Philippians. Not only did he not cling to his top spot, he emptied himself, the scripture says. He cashed it in. He walked away from it all. We're stunned when we see people at the top walk away. We can't figure out why they do something like that. But Jesus left it all, became not only human in form, but adopted the role of a servant. Took on what these people that that you know came to work and and slave away, so to speak. Okay. Take on that life, I guess you could say, and uh, adopt the role of a servant. Do you see it? He worked his way down. And finally, we're told he died the death of a desperate, wicked criminal on a cross. And then God brought him back to life and brought him back home to glory. So start at the top, come all the way down to the bottom, and back up. And the ascension is a major picture of that as well. Jesus emptied himself and God exalted him. Can you imagine the applause, if there is indeed applause, okay, in in heaven over Jesus' return? He went down and now he's back up. And I'm not saying everybody's standing around clapping necessarily. I'm just saying, if there was, can you imagine it? It'd be deafening. Humility is a key to true joy. Jesus didn't just say it. He lived it, and he proved it, and praise God. Praise God. It's right there. It's right here. This is who Jesus is. This is God's mercy. Praise God. I want to make six points, six things. And you may find this helpful if you, I don't know if you've got room in your margins or you want, you have a news, you maybe you have a folder or something, a notebook, uh, you know, that maybe you want to jot a thought or two down on or whatever, but there's going to be six. Uh, <coughs> stuff in order here. As I mentioned, it was Montefiore who said, one of the greatest and most glorious of all. But this parable is one of the greatest and glorious of all. It may indeed have have had a comparatively limited application when it was spoken of for the very first time. But it contains... Layer and layer and layer after layer after layer after layer of of truth that goes right to the very heart of the Christian faith. We begin with the comparatively limited significance that it originally had. Originally, what was it? Well, for one thing, it was a warning to the disciples. That's number one. In In one sense, it was a warning to his followers of that day. It is as if Jesus had said to them, 
you have received a great privilege of coming into the Christian church and into Christian fellowship very early. You guys are the first. You guys showed up at sunrise. Okay? So this picture, this parable is picturing this as the group comes at the very start of the day to put their effort to work. Right at the beginning. In, in later days, uh, others would come in and you must not claim any kind of special honor. Well, I was here first. <laughs> I remember I had a, uh, a woman elder say to me one time at my first church, she says, uh, I was here long before you came and I will be here long after you leave. Uh, and just, she's right. I mean, she's that was right, but it wasn't very gracious. <laughs> the disciples were to understand that others are going to be coming in and you're no better than them just because you were here first. <laughs> All men, no matter when they come, are equally precious to God. There are people who think that because they have been members of the church for a long time, and you'll hear this every once in a while, yeah, I've been in the church for 56 years, you know, blah, 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 and all this, you're missing the point. That was a privilege for you to be involved with the things of God for all those years. So you had nothing to do with it. They... they a lot of people act like it somehow belongs to them, that they can dictate its policy, etc. Such people resent that what seems to them to be an intrusion of new blood or the rise of, of a new generation with different plans and different ways in the Christian church. Seniority does not necessarily mean honor. Okay, that's number one. The disciples were first, but they weren't to see it like they were going to be the only ones and others should be welcomed, okay? Number two, there is an equally definite warning to the Jews here in this parable. They knew that they were the chosen people, nor would they ever willingly forget that choice. As a consequence, they looked down upon the Gentiles and quite frankly, the Gentiles looked down upon the Jews. Kind of a two-way street, I guess you could say. Usually they hated and despised each other and hoped for nothing but their, own, but their destruction. Their, this attitude threatened to be carried forward into the Christian church. If Gentiles were to be allowed into the fellowship of the church, you know, they, they must come in as inferiors. And this is kind of the attitude that the people that were called the circumcision had. The people that Paul was referring to at one point. And he, and he said, you know, what they, what, what they think people have to do is come out of the regular life of life and become a Jew first. And then switch from Judaism to Christianity. You have to be circumcised first and then you can be a Christian. Then you can be in the church. And the New Testament, of course, says, no, that's totally misunderstanding what God had in mind. This vineyard was for all. Thirdly, 
These are the original lessons of this parable. The first two here that I've mentioned. The disciples and then, of course, the, uh, the Jews. The, that's the original lessons. But there is a lot more that it can say to us. In it, there is, and this is the third point, there is the comfort of God. There is the comfort of God. It means that no matter when a man enters the kingdom, whether it's late or soon, in between or whatever, the first flush of youth in the strength of the midday or when the shadows are lengthening, anytime, anytime from beginning to end, it is equally dear to God. Amen? It is equally dear to God. The rabbis had a saying, some enter the kingdom in an hour, others hardly enter it in a lifetime. In the picture of the holy city in the Revelation, there are 12 gates. Remember this? From the book of Revelation? There are gates on the east side, which is the direction towards the dawn, whereby a man may enter in the glad morning of his days. Just a picture of coming early. There are, there are gates on the west, which is the direction of the setting sun, whereby a man may enter in his age. And no matter when man comes to Christ, he will actually be found to be equally dear to him. However, if you let the world work on you for a number of years, it just makes it a whole lot harder to come in later. That's why I've often said and encouraged like young people, for example, to be looking to Jesus, to be looking to, to you know, be following him now, get into his word, read the scriptures, etc. okay? Even from an early age so that, you know, your faith can start young. Isn't that what Paul was talking about when he was telling Timothy? You know, you had your mother, you had your grandmother, you know, and they were the ones to, to lead you through. May we not go even further with this thought of comfort. I think we can. Sometimes a man dies full of years and full of honor with his day's work ended and his task completed. And sometimes a young person dies before the door of life and achievement have even opened at all, or so it seems. And from God, they will both receive the same welcome whether it's early or whether it's late. I, I always, when I think of this, I always think of the thief on the cross. I mean, that guy couldn't do one more thing. You know, he couldn't lead one more Bible study or do this or do that or, or come up with, he's on the cross and he's going to be dead in minutes. And he says, Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus did not argue with them. I want you to notice that. He did not argue and say, well, you didn't really put in enough time. You didn't, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, and you didn't, you know. You didn't add all these things up to create your own, you know, tower of uh, whatever. <laughs> pizza. <laughs> leaning, the leaning tower of pizza. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, and you think that's somehow going to get you someplace. Fourthly, the fourth, the fourth point, there's the infinite compassion 
of God. Infinite compassion of God. There is an element of human tenderness throughout this parable. There is nothing more tragic in the world than a man who is unemployed, a man whose talents are rusting in idleness because they are, uh, there is nothing for him to do. You know, he claims he wants to do something, he wants to do this or, or that or whatever, but it just gets wasted away. Hugh Martin reminds us that a great teacher used to say that the saddest words in all of Shakespeare's plays are the words, Othello's occupation's gone. Othello's occupation is gone. In that marketplace stood waiting. The men stood waiting because no one had hired them. And they even waited all day until the very last hour. On his compassion, the master comes and lets them have their hour. It's only one hour to quitting time. Get in there and get working. He could not bear to see them idle, just like he doesn't want us to be idle before him either. And I don't mean just running around like a chicken with your head cut off. I, I mean serving the Lord. Okay, serving the Lord. As it has been put, the parable states implicitly two great truths, which are the very charter of the working man. The, the, the right of every man to work and the right of every man to a living wage for his work. These are things that are talked about quite a bit in our society. All right? Fifth, fifth point. What about the generosity? You got the compassion, the comfort, okay? There's two warnings before that, but look at all that God gives in the rest of this parable. Look at the fifth one, the generous, generosity of God. These men did not come to do the same work. These guys that were hired in the last hour, they, had not, they did not have much work to do. It was just that last. Everybody else works and works and works and works and works hour after hour after hour and they come in and they're on the last hour. A couple of lessons to be seen in this. First of all, let me mention all service ranks the same with God. He's not looking at the time. In other words, it, it, you don't get down to the end and you go, oh, you put 50 years in and this one only put one year in, so I love you more than I love this one. He doesn't do that. All service ranks the same with God. It is not the amount of service given, but it is the love in which it is given that really matters. A man, a man out of his plenty may give... Uh, us a gift of let's say a hundred dollars for example or something that's worth a hundred dollars all right and in truth we are grateful no doubt about that but a child may give us a little birthday or christmas card which cost only a a, a few cents or of course cards cards don't just cost a few cents anymore but anyway uh but which has uh laboriously and lovingly saved up for in order to give it or perhaps made it himself handmade okay I remember Cindy used to talk about her uh, uh, grandfather 
Every once in a while, he'd get out his, uh, oh, what do you call it? It's not a jewelry box, but sort of. And it's a, it's a guy's jewelry box, okay? And you, and you lift it up, and he had all, you know, little tie tacks and things like that. Well, they had made him stuff through the years. You know, little tie tacks made out of glitter and, you know. <laughs> and so he saved all that stuff, you know, and would show it to them and so forth. And then went, So then it would get enjoyed again and again and again. Praise God. And that gift, with little value of its own, I mean, I don't know exactly what these things look like, but uh, got them out and maybe even put them on a shirt just to, just to model them or whatever. And they were just, they were, they're, they're, Cindy used to tell me she, there was no, fav, no more favorite moment than that because these things were treasured. These things were kept. These, these things were um, shown when times like this came up. God does not look on the amount of our service. So long is all we have to give and all service ranks the same with God. If it's in love, it's very, very valuable. Praise God. If it's all in love, then it's all very valuable. The second lesson in, in this, and this is all within number five now, so don't get confused. The second lesson is even greater. All, all God gives is of grace. We cannot earn what God gives us. We cannot even deserve it. What God gives is given out of the goodness of his own heart. And what God gives is not pay. It's a gift. Amen? Not a reward, but a grace. And lastly, number six. Number six. I suppose you could call it the supreme lesson of the parable. The whole point of work is the spirit in which it is done. The whole point of the service, of the work, of what we do for the Lord is the spirit in which it's being done. That's the whole point. You're not doing it to earn anything. You're not, you're, you're not, you don't get God over a barrel because you have done what he wants you to do, so now he's got to do something for you. It's the wrong attitude. It's the wrong way to see life. Servants are clearly divided into two classes. The first came to an agreement with the master. They had a contract and that contract said we work, and if you give us so much money, if you give us this much, and they had the whole day ahead of them, and as their conduct showed, all they were concerned with was what they got, and and how much, uh, as much as possible, to try to get as much as possible out of their work. But in the case of those who were engaged later, the 11th hour worker, as it's called, and the thief on the cross is kind of the ultimate of that, I suppose. If you think about the 11th hour worker, he's at the end of life. He can't do anything else. He can't, he can't come up with any other marks on that side of the ledger to show how worthy he is of, of Jesus' mercy and grace. So he just says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. 
I tell you the truth, you're going to be with me in paradise today. Today. In the case of those who were engaged later, there was no word of contract. They didn't sign any papers or any of that. They all want, what they all wanted was a chance, a chance to work. And they willing, willingly left the reward up to the master. They didn't sit and haggle about it. They didn't say, well, I think we ought to get this, and I think we ought to get that. I mean, hey, we're talking 60 minutes here. You know, this is hard work. You know, we need this. and we No, there wasn't any of that. It was just to work. Man is not a Christian if he is, first of all, concerned with the pay. Peter asks, what do we get out of it? Okay, you know, what about us, Lord? You say this, but what, what do we get out of it? The, the Christian works for the joy of, of serving God and serving other people. That is why the first will be last and the last will be first. Many people in this world who have earned great rewards will have a very low place in the who has earned great rewards in the kingdom because the rewards are were his sole thought. It's what he's primarily thinking about. I need to get this. I need to get that. I need to have something else. Many a person who, as the world counts it, is considered a poor man is actually going to turn out to be great in the kingdom. First will be last. Last will be first. That's what it's talking about. Praise God. It is the paradox of the Christian life that he who aims at reward loses it and he who forgets reward actually finds it. I want to close with this, okay? Uh, Because there's still a little bit here to go, all right? After verse 16, there are uh, three more verses, 17, 18, and 19. Let me go ahead and read this first. And then I'll make a couple comments about it. Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples apart in the way and said unto them. So now he's, got, he's evidently got many people following him at this point. Perhaps even hundreds, we don't know. Uh, some commentaries suggest, remember in John chapter 6, when uh, they decide to leave and... You know, everybody leaves, and he turns to the 12 disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, you're the, one with, you're the one with the words of eternal life. You know, we're with you, Jesus. Uh, there are some commentaries I've read that have um, expressed that there were probably thousands. There were probably thousands of people following Jesus at that time. And they walked away. And all that seemed to be left at that time was the 12. All right? So how many were here? I don't know. It just says Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples apart. That is, pulled them away from all the rest of them and said to them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be betrayed. This is Jesus speaking now. Unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death. And they shall deliver him. Now this is even more detailed than before. 
Remember last week when I told you about the very first place that Jesus started to tell them about how he's going to suffer and die? This, this, is not, this thing about ministry and traveling around, it didn't look like it should be about suffering and dying. It didn't look like that's what this should be about. But Jesus said, that's exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer and die, but I'm going to rise again. Now, think about this for just a second. Let me just veer off on this for a second. Remember I told you, when you get closer and closer to Easter, you see places where it actually comes right out and says, comes right out and says, that nobody understood what he was talking about. Nobody got it. Peter didn't get it. Mary Magdalene didn't get it. Nobody got it. When it came to talking about rising again, they did not get it. And you remember the scripture that was in that first section I, we read last week? It said that they did not get it until they saw him risen from the dead. And I told you, don't get, don't get forlorn over that because he's up in heaven now and we don't, he's not here. So we don't physically see him, okay? But... We're talking about seeing him with the heart. We're talking about seeing him with the spirit. Okay? With the soul. We're talking about, it's, it's, not, it's not with the eyeballs. Okay? I mean, what are people going to do who are blind? If it were eyeballs, what are people going to do if they're blind? How are they going to see the risen Lord? And they're not going to believe until they see the risen Lord. That's what the Bible says. So we're not talking about eyeballs. We're not talking about whether you had cataract surgery or you wear glasses or contacts or whatever. We're not talking about that. We're talking about seeing him with the heart. When Mary stood outside that tomb, I'm telling you, she had Jesus right there. And he thought, and she thought that he was the gardener. And she said, would you just show, if you took the body away, would you just show me where he is so I can come and get him? Yeah, like she's going to pick up a 160-pound guy and carry him around, you know. But when he said Mary, bam, that was from the heart. Do you hear me? That was from the heart. And that's when she knew who he was. Only two people in the scriptures call him Raboni. That's blind Bartimaeus and Mary Magdalene. All right? And Raboni means my great teacher. <laughs> not just my teacher, or not just teacher, but my great teacher. All right? Go up to Jerusalem, son of man shall be betrayed. Into the, unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge. By Gentiles, he's talking about the Romans, Pontius Pilate and, all, and the soldiers and all of that kind of thing. And to scourge. Now this stuff isn't mentioned before. In that earlier rendition of of what this is going to come to and how he foretells his death and so forth. This, this detail is not given. Uh, deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him and the third day he shall rise again. And they did not get it. 
And his point is, nobody gets it. You're not going to get it until you see him with the heart. Could tell you to your to your blue in the face or till I'm blue in the face about the resurrection and you will not get it until you've seen him with the heart. That's what the Bible says. And I'll I'll show when we get closer to Easter, I'll, I'll take you into that pre-stuff before the Easter story and it comes right out and says it just like our text did last week okay that they they did not get it unless they saw him and not with the eyes we're talking about with the heart turns out in the scripture we were in back in chapter 16 last week and then it had right before it it had the he foretells his, his future, <laughs> foretells his upcoming death, okay? Now we jump to chapter 20, and right after the parable, right after it, he foretells his own death. It turns out this is the third time that Jesus warned his disciples that he was on the way to the cross, okay? Both Mark and Luke, they add their own touches to the story, uh, to show that on this occasion there was the atmosphere of, of the apostolic band, that there was certain tenseness and certain foreboding of tragedy to come. Mark says that Jesus was uh, walking ahead by himself and that the disciples were amazed and they were afraid. It says in Mark chapter 10, uh, they did not understand what was happening but they could see in every line of Jesus' body his struggle of the soul. Luke, as well, tells how Jesus took the disciples to himself alone that he might try to compel them to understand what lay ahead. There, there is here the very first decisive step in the last act of this inescapable, inescapable tragedy. Jesus deliberately and open-eyed sets out for Jerusalem and the cross. The very next step is to Jerusalem. He knows what he's doing. He's going to give his life. There's a strange inclusiveness in the suffering to which Jesus looked forward. It was a suffering in which no pain of heart or mind or body was to be lacking. It was total. It was complete. He was to be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests, we're told here, also the scribes. There we see the suffering of the heart broken by the disloyalty of friends. He, he was to be condemned to death. One of his own disciples would turn his back on him. There, there we are. There we see the suffering of injustice, which is very, very hard to bear. He was to be mocked by the Romans. There we see the suffering of the humiliation and a, and a desperate insult. He was scourged, whipped. Few tortures in the world compare to the Roman scourge. And there we see the suffering of much, much physical pain. But 
the resurrection. The resurrection. Because beyond the cross, there is a crown. And beyond defeat, there is triumph. And beyond death, there is life. There it is. Right there. Amen. There it is. Watch. Kid wasn't allowed to use that word anymore. I'm sure he found a way that it was okay that he read the scripture though. (laughs) Okay. You think maybe they got him a watch for Easter? (laughs) I wonder. I wonder. If you do watch, I mean, watch, you will get the greatest present of all. Amen? Resurrection life. Dear God, we come before you and we're so very thankful that you have this parable in here. It, it seems at first that maybe we could have cut this out of here. At, at first, a lot of people would look at this and say, well, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything today because we don't have this way of seeing the harvest and we've got to, you know, gather with our own tools and we're going to go ahead and spend the day or spend an hour or whatever it is, dear God. It looks like, it looks like this is for the olden days. This parable is long since passed away. That's what it looks like, I think, to a lot of people. And they're wrong. They're just so very wrong. This parable, like Montefiore said years and years ago, it's the best. It's one of the best. It's one of the most important one of the most meaningful. And there we have it. There it is. Right there. Chapter 20. And I want to thank you. Glory be to God Almighty. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We, we just give you glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.